Yeah, it's really good to be here. I've been here for two weeks. Uh, first week I was jet lagged, and second week I've been sick. So you know, <laughs> Pacific Northwest. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, just a boy, just a boy ready for today. Um, so we're going to look at the doctrine of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but first we're going to start with a bit on theological method and a bit about answering theological questions because. I think, if I, don't, I think it's interesting in itself, but I think if you don't do that, then you might come to the second part and think, why is he talking about all this really abstract theology? Why not just look at what the Bible has to say, which we will do in part. So the first part is to sort of contextualize the second part. Um, if you have questions throughout, if they're questions for clarification, if you don't understand something, you just put up your hand and ask. If they're questions because you object with one of my points, then that's fine, but if you just hold them to the end, all right? So clarification, just just pop your hand in between objections towards the end. I love objections. Um, there's a low level of politeness required, but in general, objections are good. So let's start thinking about theological questions. Uh, so theology, study of, study of God, and question is as it says. So here's a theological question. What is God like? Um, 20 seconds, the person beside you, can you list another one or two theological questions? Give me examples of what theological questions might be, just with the person beside you for 20 seconds. Okay, and join those conversations to a close. Can I have a few ideas of theological questions? Anyone want to offer theological questions? What did you guys think? Well, we what's human? What's the spirit? What's the soul? Yeah, what's, great. Um, yeah, what, what is the soul? Is there a soul? What is the yes. soul? What is a human being? Yes. What is the Holy Spirit? Excellent. Yeah. Abigail, did you, did you uh, come up with one oh, first time? Uh, we talked about, does he have an adversary? Does God have an adversary? Yep. Yeah. Any along the back? Any theological questions? How are human beings saved? Do we need to be saved? Do you yeah, okay. Okay, good, good. So you get us, yeah, get us, yep, go for it. Is the Holy Spirit really God? Okay, yep, good. So these are examples of theological questions that, that we probably all have. And the question is, how do we answer them? If, you, if, you, if you're interested in these questions, you're going to want to know how to answer them. I'm going to have to go back and forward here quite a lot because of the PowerPoint. So one answer to that question is the biblicist response. So when the biblicist is given a question, he or she says, the way I deal with this question, I, I just see what the Bible says. Whatever the Bible says, that's the answer to the question, okay? Now, this is a huge topic, and I'm just sort of going to give you my view. There, there's so much more we could say. I'm going to, going to give you my view. So, um, the biblicist will say this here, and I'll say, you know, in, in Timothy, it says, All scripture is inspired by God, is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Now... I agree with the biblicist that the scriptures are incredibly important, but I think there are issues with the biblicist approach, which says that the way we answer this, these questions is just through an appeal to the scriptures. And I'm going to give you 
one or two, some, some evidence that's going to try and um, suggest why I think that's the case. If you're a biblicist, then you can always see in the Q&A afterwards, you can push back at me, be like, no, the evidence you gave is awful, biblicism is true. So does anyone know who these guys here are? Guy, this guy here? John Stott, yep, who's a famous English um, pastor and theologian. And on the right, everyone's, a lot of people are going to know him. J.I. Packer is also an Englishman, but he, he taught at Regent College for a long time. Now, these guys are looked up to as leaders, and they uh, spent, you know, spent decades of their lives studying theology and studying the Bible, but they disagree on a really one central doctrine. Does anyone know which doctrine they disagree on? They disagree on several. Does anyone know? Yeah. Eternal punishment. Yeah, very good. Very good. So do, do you want to... Eternal punishment. Yeah. Do you want to give us a sense of where the disagreement is? Yeah, well, I believe John Stott um, believes in, in annihilation. Annihilationism, yeah. Are destroyed, and if they're... Uh, the hell is annihilation. Yeah, yeah, good. Packer believes it's eternal. Yeah, very good. Punishment. Great. So John Stott's annihilationist, so he thinks that if you die and you're not reconciled to Christ, then you just cease to exist... Okay, it's called conditional immortality. You only have immortality, everlasting life, on the condition that you're reconciled to Christ. Uh, Packer holds the traditional view that is if you die and you're not reconciled to Christ, you spend eternity in hell. Okay, so here you have two guys, really well versed in the scriptures, really well versed in theology, but they hold different views on a really central Christian doctrine. Now, so the question is, okay, why, why is that? Is it the case that one of these guys has been unbiblical and the other isn't? It seems like an uncharitable way to explain things because they're both so versed in the Bible. So this, this is some evidence that suggests that um, what goes into answering theological questions is the Bible plus something. Okay, Here's a little bit more. Um, does anyone know what this here is? Supposedly is. It was in the news about a year ago. Okay, so I'm not an archaeologist, so this may be completely bogus. Maybe like a Trump tweet or something that isn't like fact-checked. Remember, there's one about the Syrian thingy. Um, so apparently this is the room that the Council of Nicaea took place in. Okay, so it's, this is Turkey. It's Turkey, and apparently this is the chamber that took, and it was found recently in the last year or two. So the Council of Nicaea took place in 325 AD, and... It took place to try and make sense of a theological debate that was going on. Quite similar, well, similar in the sense that there was a disagreement. There was a disagreement between Stott and Packer. And back in 325, there was a disagreement between different church leaders. Okay, And the, the, dis, the disagreement was over the place of, of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Okay, Is Jesus really God? Those sorts of questions. Okay. So these different groups of people have been reading the scriptures and they've been coming up with different answers. Some are like, yeah, he's God. Others like, no, no, he's sort of, he's come from God, but he's not equal to God, etc., etc. So they come up with different answers. And um, actually, this will just give you a flavor of some of the different answers that they came up with. Okay, Patrick, tell us a bit more about this Trinity thing. Yeah, Patrick, tell us. But remember that we're simple people without your fancy education and books and learning, and we're hearing about all of this for the first time, so try to keep it simple. Okay, Patrick? Yeah, real simple, Patrick. 
Sure, there are uh, three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, yet there is only one God. Don't get what you're saying here, Patrick. <laughs> Don't get what you're laying down here, Patrick. Could you use an analogy, Patrick? Sure. Uh, the Trinity is like uh, water and how you can find water in three different forms, liquid and ice and vapor. Modalism, Patrick! <laughs> Modalism, an ancient heresy confessed by teachers such as Noetus and Sibelius, which espouses that God is not three distinct persons, but that he merely reveals himself in three different forms. This heresy was clearly condemned in Canon 1 at the First Council of Constantinople in 381 AD, and those who confess it cannot rightly be considered a part of the Church Catholic. Come on, Patrick! Get together, Patrick! Okay, uh, then the Trinity is like uh, the sun in the sky, where you have the star and the light and the heat. Oh, Patrick. <laughs> That's Arianism, Patrick. Arianism? Yes, Arianism, Patrick. A theology which states that Christ and the Holy Spirit are creations of the Father and not one in nature with him. Exactly like how heat and light are not the star itself, but are merely creations of the star. That's a bad analogy, Patrick. <laughs> First, Patrick. All right, sorry. The Trinity is like... Uh, this three-leaf clover here. I'm gonna stop you right there. Hold <laughs> your horses, Patrick. You're about to confess partialism. Partialism? Yes, partialism. A heresy which asserts that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not distinct persons of the Godhead, but are different parts of God, each composing one-third of the divine. And who confesses the heresy of partialism? The first season of the cartoon program Voltron, where five robots <laughs> rush together to form one giant robot samurai, obviously. I've never heard of Voltron. Of course you haven't. It's not going to exist for another 1,500 years now, Patrick. Yeah, get with the program, Patrick. I mean, really, Patrick. I'm going to stab you in the face, Patrick. <laughs> okay, that was probably a bit much. <laughs> All right, I'll try again. Uh, the Trinity is like how the same man can be a husband and a father and an employer. Modalism again. All right, then it's like the three layers of an animal. Partialism revisited. Fine. The Trinity is a mystery which cannot be comprehended by human reason, but is understood only through faith and is best confessed in the words of the Athanasian Creed, which states that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the substance, that we are compelled by the Christian truth to confess that each distinct person is God and Lord, and that the deity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Holy Spirit is one, equal in glory, co-equal in majesty. <laughs> okay. Why didn't you just say that? <laughs> 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 bumps and giant green foam hats get riotously drunk and vomit in the Chicago River to celebrate our conversion. <laughs> okay, so this, uh, this shows how there was a lot of debates around uh, what God was like. And uh, people couldn't figure it out, okay? So the Emperor Constantine brings together the bishops at Nicaea and they have this big debate and discussion. They come up with Nicene Creed. And if you go to a more liturgical church, you will um, recite the creeds, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasius' Creed at church. Um, and so the Nicene Creed, this is part of it here. Okay. So is Jesus equal to God? And this will be, you'll, know, you'll come across this at church maybe. One Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father, full ages, etc., etc., etc. Now, most Christians, I think 
for uh, those of you Christians here, I imagine if I asked you, do you believe in the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed? I think most of you would probably say yes. Generally speaking, would say yes. Um, and uh, those who believe in these creeds are said to be ecumenically orthodox. Okay, so these are the ecumenical creeds that the Protestants, the Catholics, and the Orthodox, the Eastern Orthodox, all believe in. Um, and those who hold to them are, are said to be ecumenically orthodox. Now, the point to notice here is that what you see here is not found explicitly written in the Bible. Okay? It's not found explicitly written in the Bible. There is biblical evidence for it, ample biblical evidence, but it's not stated explicitly in the Bible. Okay? Um, but most of us believe it. So this gives some evidence. Again, those of you who can push back in the Q&A, but this gives some evidence that alongside the Bible, when we're asking, answering theological questions, we need something else, namely the creeds, namely these creeds, and, oh, excellent, Julia's on it, and some would say, reason as well, it's called the three-legged stool, um, put forward by an Anglican theologian called Richard Hooker, scripture, tradition, and reason. So tradition refers to, in part, these creeds, these ecumenical creeds of the church. And then reason is our ability to reflect upon the scriptures, reflect upon the creeds, and answer theological questions. Okay? So my, my view, and the view that I, I'll be working with this evening, is that scripture is uh, like the sole authority. And from scripture you get the tradition and the creeds are authoritative and that reason has a role to play as well in theology so that's sort of that's sort of the the model that I'm using and then the next one okay so so you're gonna go beyond you're gonna say all right uh, we've got scripture and then we've got the creeds but what about questions that aren't answered in the creeds as well uh, what about a question like is um, abortion wrong or um, even, even a question like this here why did Jesus die for our sins now, there's loads of uh, material in the Bible about that, um, but it's not explicitly addressed, I think, in the ecumenical creeds. Clark, you can correct me if I'm wrong. But no, 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 it's not. Okay. Um, so beyond the Bible and beyond the creeds, then we have what uh, this chap called Fides Quarens Intellectum. Does anyone know who this guy is? Anselm. Big Anselm. Big Anselm. Anselm of Canterbury. Part of the A-team, <laughs> Gustin, Anselm, Aquinas, Ambrose, legends. Um, Anselm of Canterbury, 11th, 12th century, was a philosopher, a monk, then he became the Archbishop of Canterbury, had a horrible time trying to administer it because he was, he was suited to philosophy. But Fides Quarens Intellectum, anyone know their Latin? Faith seeking understanding. Faith seeking understanding, yeah, okay. So we've got the scriptures and we've got the creeds, but then there's other stuff that we're still like, okay, I want answers to these sort of questions. And Anselm says we deal with that in an attitude of we have faith, we believe in the creeds, and we believe in the scriptures, and then we seek understanding, okay? And we seek understanding using our minds. Um, and Anselm wrote this beautiful, beautiful books um, where he'd look at questions like why did... God become incarnate, and he'd give these incredibly logical and rigorous answers, and he'd deal with objections. It's incredible stuff, um, trying to, to get answers. Now, 
once you get your answers to say the question of why did God become incarnate, Anselm and certainly myself would obviously think that is are there are these answers going to have more or less authority than the scriptures? What do you think? Less, yeah, going to have well for me at least going to have less authority because what can happen when you're trying to figure out these answers? What can happen? <coughs> right, yeah, and you can get it wrong. Just get it wrong, yeah. So this stuff, faith-seeking understanding, you're trying to get answers to more specific theological questions that aren't answered directly in the scriptures and aren't answered in the creeds, but there's a sense that what you're doing has less authority. Whatever ideas you come up with, it has less authority than the creeds and the scriptures, particularly because in theology there's usually different answers that um, are brought up. So for example... With the question of why did Jesus, or how was it that Jesus dealt with our sins? Um, it's called the doctrine of the atonement. There are at least four or five major competing um, answers to that question. There's the satisfaction theory, the penal substitution theory, the ransom theory, the moral exemplar theory, and there's one other. Christus Victor. Christus Victor, exactly. So, yeah. And that, so that's what we're going to be doing this evening. We're going to do a bit of faith-seeking understanding. The models that I throw out uh, and the answers I give have very limited authority. I'd almost say they have no authority. But um, we do it, well, I do it, because I want answers to these questions, all right? I don't want to just stop at what the creed says. I want to ploy further. I want to ask more. And uh, for me, it's an act. It does, um, in some way, constitute an act of worship. And it also has practical benefits as well. So figuring out what happens to people when they die, if they're not reconciled to Christ, plausibly that has practical benefits. I think you give a lecture on universalism recently. So if you think universalism is a view that all people go to heaven when they die, Packer's view is that only those who are reconciled to Christ go to heaven when they die and the others go to hell. Presumably this could have practical outworkings uh, in terms of mission okay you're not gonna have too many uh, universalist missionaries because everyone's going to heaven anyway um okay so that's that's what we're going to be doing a bit of faith seeking understanding any questions to clarify any of the points so far not to push back on hold hold it it's coming <laughs> your opportunity to point something is coming but uh, any questions to clarify any of the points so far okay let's rock on so we're going to look at the question uh, to do with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Go on to the next one. So let's set up, let's set up the question. Um, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there, says the psalmist. Okay, some people would take this as evidence for omnipresence. Okay, so... A lot of people think uh, throughout the church tradition of thought that God has various attributes. He's good, he's all-powerful, omnipotent, he's all-knowing, omniscient. And quite a lot of people think God is also omnipresent, omni being all-present. All so God is present everywhere. Okay. So some people think that God has the attribute of being present everywhere. And then... Attached to that, there's also evidence in the Bible that the Holy Spirit fills people. Okay, so they're all filled with the Holy Spirit. God poured out the Holy Spirit abundantly. 
Okay. So here is the question. Here's the question. If God is everywhere, if God, if you buy into omnipresence, which you might not, you might push back against that. But if God is everywhere, how can how can you be filled with him? You know, if God is already in you, how can you be filled with him? If okay, say that say the glass is a human being. Um, and God is the water. If the glass, the person is already full of God because of omnipresence, God is present everywhere. How can you then fill up the glass even more? Okay. Does everyone get what the question is? Okay, so say we have Fred. Fred um, Fred is a human being and he's, say he's not a Christian, but People who believe in omnipresence think that God is still in him. God is present everywhere, even in the core of Fred's being. Say Fred converts to Christianity, starts going to church, etc., etc., etc. And the Christian view is then that the Holy Spirit fills Fred. Okay. So the question is, if Fred was already, if God was already in Fred, how how can the Holy Spirit fill him? He's you know he's already full. God's already in him. Does that question make sense? Because that's the the key question we're going to be dealing with. Any questions about it? Please, uh, I always tell my boys that I teach that the boys that ask the questions get the good marks. Because, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's not a sign of weakness. Any questions about that? Maybe feeling is not enough. Sorry? Maybe just being full is not enough. You're starting to give answers, which I like. Which I like. <laughs> well, is that, it, sorry, it was supposed to be another part of the question. Um, Should it be flowing? Should it be overflowing? Yeah. yeah. Okay, well, that would that would be one of the responses. Okay, good. Okay, so let's uh, let's address let's address the question. This guy, William Alston, Bill Alston, philosopher, American philosopher, and um, yeah, he was one of the top philosophers of the 20th century. He came before a guy called Alvin Plantinga, who just like really blew Christian philosophy religion um, to the ceiling. He really did amazing work. This guy was a forerunner, amazing philosopher. So in 1988, he came out with a paper where he put forward three models, okay? Three models we're gonna look at this evening. And his three models tried to deal with two questions. One of the questions is the question I put forward, question of, of internality, how can you fill something that's already full? And the other question, which doesn't really matter for tonight, but he tried to deal with it was, um, how is it that God changes us when he fills us? Is it that God just comes in and changes us without our consent or does God work with us or is it all of us doing the work and none of God this question of cooperation okay but we're going to be focused on the internality question three models fiat model first model fiat model has nothing to do with the car okay fiat model so you know what you do if you rule by fiat if the king rules by fiat by force, yep, yep. Force, answer by, by decree, yep. Decree, yeah, by decree, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So if I'm the, if I'm a king or queen, you know, 21st century. <laughs> what is it? I'm a Trudeau country. <laughs> um, uh, if I'm the, the queen, then I, I rule by decree. I rule by fiat. What I say, I say it and it happens. Okay. I say it and it happens. Like go invade that land, and the land is invaded by my soldiers. Okay. So the fiat model says that. When God fills us, what he does is that he, um, he just changes us by fiat. 
He reaches into us and he changes us. He changes our moral character. He changes us so that rather than wanting to beat our wife, we want to uh, be nice to her. Rather than wanting to steal from the shop, we want to like give a smile to the shopkeeper. Rather than wanting to, etc. You get the idea, okay? Fiat model. Next, next slide. Is so this is Alston himself. <coughs> so Alston describing this model. He says, God simply wills that. At a certain moment, my concern for the condition of, of others will increase. And my concern for my own comfort, repose, and recognition will decrease. And it thereby happens. Just as whatever God wills to happen, thereby happens without any needs for further intermediary. Okay, so this is the fiat model. One way of explaining the work of the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit. God just changes us. Okay. Any questions about the fiat model? Okay, let's go on to the second one. Interpersonal transaction model. I just call it the interpersonal model. So on this model... When God fills us with the Holy Spirit, he interacts as not sort of like a king or queen that decrees changes on us, but rather as a person, okay, like two people. And he does things like he calls us to repentance. So Fred's over here, Fred's converted. God calls to him, calls to him to repentance and to being forgiven. God presents himself as a role model. And God makes certain aspects of Fred's life seem desirable. So yeah, he used to uh, beat his wife and uh, he used to be fine with that. But, but now he's, God makes it such that um, he, he, he thinks of that part of his life and he doesn't, he doesn't like it and he wants to change it. Okay, So you've got two people, God and Fred, and they interact in this way. So to be filled with the Holy Spirit means that God has this interpersonal uh, effect on you, changing you. Um, yeah, there's a. So yeah, this is Alston again. God influences us the way one person influences another, seeking to evoke responses, voluntary and other otherwise, from the other person. So two models: the fiat model and the interpersonal model. Alston isn't happy with either of these. He thinks that this this might be part of what God does, but it doesn't it doesn't deal with this question of the filling of the Holy Spirit. And the reason for Alston doesn't deal with the filling of the Holy Spirit is because it's too external. Okay, it's too external for Alston. Okay, so uh, the fiat model, God decrees, but there's a sense that, that it's me and it's God. God's changing me, but he's, but he's external from me. He's not in me. Um, in the interpersonal model, yeah, you've got two people and sure, they interact and they have... They, they talk and they feel, but still they're two people, right? They're separate from each other. They're too external. Alston has a few other criticisms of the fiat one, but um, I don't think they're good ones, so we won't, won't go. This is, the, this is the main one. This is the main one. Okay, so too external. Okay, okay, Alston, so what's your solution to this, uh, this problem of externality? Okay, enter the sharing model. Okay, the sharing model. So, yeah, so Austin, Austin thinks that when we talk of the internality of the Holy Spirit, we use words like filled, permeated, pervaded. Uh, being filled with the Spirit is like being plugged into a source of electricity, etc., etc. Okay? 
So Alston is unhappy with this externality of the previous two models and instead he puts forward the Sherry model. Okay, And the Sherry model is a model uh, wherein Christian believers come to uh, participate in the very life of God, very life of, of God in Alston's uh, language. And uh, he has to use a metaphor to try and explain this, okay? Metaphor or, a, or an analogy, analogy rather, which is, if you just go back to the brief, thanks to it. Okay, and the analogy he uses is that of uh, a neural wiring hookup, okay? A neural wiring hookup. So, neural wiring hookup, I, I sit down at a table and there'd be someone opposite me and they'd uh, they plug us up, okay? Plug us up in the analogy. And the analogy goes that in this hookup, I could... Um, experience the thoughts and the feelings of the person opposite me through because of the um, because of the I'm not going to use a technical term because I'm not a scientist so I'm just going to say through the wires okay <laughs> through the wires that are attached to my head and the head of the person opposite me I can experience the thoughts and feelings of the other person okay bit like, bit like well not really there's no wires there okay <laughs> this is a sharing model for Alston so Alston thinks that in order to really do justice to the internality of the Holy Spirit, we ha have to have a model um, like the sharing model, where I, it, what happens is that I, I come to, obviously this is an analogy, so I'm not actually plugged up to it, but um, what would happen is that the Holy Spirit would um, be in me in such a way that my thoughts and my feelings would, actually the other way around, where the Holy Spirit would, um, express his thoughts and his feelings in me such that they would feel almost like my own okay they wouldn't quite be my own but they would come through my brain and my and my physiology my physiology okay so in the same way that these two people so this guy let's say Fred and Sandra Fred experiences Sandra's thoughts and feelings because of this this hookup the analogy would, would, would suggest that um, Christian believer can experience the thoughts and feelings of the Holy Spirit um, not quite as, let's say, as if they were his own, my own, as if they were my own, okay? Because they're not, they're the Holy Spirits, but they come through my physiology, through my brain, etc. Okay, and, and Alston thinks only this does justice to the internality, the sense of being filled, permeated, okay? Alston thinks that. So Alston puts this forward in 1988, and it sort of, it was quite quiet for a decade or two, and then the last decade or two, it's, um, it's broke, broke loose. I was born in 1988, so there, you know, it, it took a while for me to grow up, and then, and then I started to cause trouble once I, no, yeah, yeah. Um, so, Let's skip two. Let's go to two. Okay. So this is Marilyn McCord Adams, and she gets involved um, in the debate after a decade or two. Uh, Marilyn McCord Adams is an incredible thinker. I highly recommend her work. She died a year ago, sadly. She was an Anglican priest, and she was she was at Oxford for a while, but most recently at Rutgers University. Incredible thinker. Um, yeah, incredible. And she responded to Alston's paper, okay? And her main criticism of the sharing model was that, okay, fair enough, this can happen sometimes. Okay, let's, 
even those those who are quite skeptical about uh, Germanic religious experiences, let us say that sometimes it's possible that I might have a thought that is the thought of God's, okay? Let's just at least say that's possible. Even if we grant that's possible, she's willing to grant, it cannot account for the day-to-day life of a Christian, okay? So the idea is, arguably, that um, Christians are supposed to be filled with the Holy Spirit in just like an ordinary day-to-day manner, okay? It's not supposed to be, arguably, just a once-off thing, but an ordinary day-to-day manner. And she says, okay, maybe people like Jesus and some saints had this very close connection to God, but this just isn't realistic, okay? Most of us don't have this, um, this like, hook-up to God, such that our, our thoughts, we're just getting God's thoughts all the time. And in my experience, some of the people that claim to have that are... Um, not to be trusted. <laughs> bit of cynicism. Bit of cynicism. But you, you can challenge that afterwards. Okay? So it, it doesn't do justice to the day-to-day life of the Christian to suggest that we've got this hook-up to God. Um, okay, so what she suggests and said, she's like, no, let's go back to the interpersonal model. Let's go back to the interpersonal model because it could be that the interpersonal model is internal. Okay, it is internal. And she gives a few examples to suggest this. One is the um, example of a mother or caregiver and the child. Okay, So here we have an interpersonal relationship. But Marilyn McCord Adams suggests that in this sort of relationship, the mother can be um, become internalized in the psyche of the child. Okay, The mother can become internalized in the psyche of the child. I was thinking about this just before, I thought, I actually, I think I've experienced this once when I, I felt homesick twice in my life. Uh, once I was 20 and I, I, I was in India and I accidentally took some water in when I was swimming in a pool and I became delirious when I got back home and it was horrible. Um, I was making animal noise and stuff. Uh, it wasn't the Holy Spirit. Um, and uh, I felt homesick. But the other time I was 14. I was 14, I was in Hungary. And I was just away, I was, I'd been away for a while, I was tired, um, and I just, for like half an hour, I just felt a bit homesick. And I, I can remember now, thinking of my mother, I just thinking of this desire to be back in, my, in the kitchen at home with my mum, because my mum made me feel really safe and nurtured or something like that, okay? But, I, but even thinking back, I can have this sense that in, in some way my mum was in was in my psyche okay i can i get that i get that sense that i was sitting there and it felt like she was very close by so this is what marlon mccord adams has in mind that it's possible for interpersonal relationships to be such that it actually it's not there isn't this barrier but actually they they um they overlap okay and she gives the mother and the child example do you get what I mean with the mother and child thing? Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah. Um, another one she gives is a therapist and client. Um, and then the other one was crowd emotions. So if you're in a, if you go to like a big U2 concert and everyone's, everyone's really, is U2 a thing here? They're, yeah. yeah, you know where they are, right? right? It's, it's, it's Irish. Um, so they're really, everyone's jumping up and down and excited. There's a sense that you feel feel the emotions of the people beside you. I think I've been thinking about this recently because of the growth of YouTube. I found myself just listening to a lot of music on YouTube. But then I've started to think, you know, now there's something about going to live 
concerts, but it's hard to know what it is because you're hearing the same music. And arguably, part of the difference is that you experience things together. You experience the reactions. So when, when there's a great piece and the person beside you goes, wow, you sort of experience that and that adds to the overall experience, okay? So this is Marilyn McCord Adams putting forward the view that actually no interpersonal, interpersonal model needn't be external to external, that there could be this sort of overlap, that God, the Holy Spirit, and the human person could be two persons interrelating, but there could be internality there. So that's her response to the critic. Yeah. Um, you can tell me if this is a better question for later. Sure. But I'm wondering if you could take like 60 seconds or less just to help us understand why internal is preferable to external. I can tell that external yeah. is what they're trying to avoid. And beside the fact that that it doesn't do justice to the language of indwelling, is there yeah. anything more you could say about why we're looking for an internal? Yeah, it's just, just the scriptural language according to um, Alston. It's just filled, permeated, um, poured out, all that sort of stuff. Okay. Yeah, I think, yeah, that's what drives it. It's a scriptural language for it. Okay, and then the next one, these guys, Porter and Rickabaugh, um, they seem pretty American to me. <laughs> uh, when I read their article and looked them up, I just, I don't know, they just seem, it says American to me. So the picture, even their name, Rickabaugh, right? Sounds very American. Southern, perhaps. Um, so they also, they also critique along the similar lines and they want to say yeah let's talk about the interpersonal model the interpersonal model can do justice to the internality and he thinks they think actually that uh, which is related to Sarah's question that Alston has focused too much on certain metaphors of filling and pouring but they he's ignored other metaphors like um, the metaphor of following the good shepherd or keeping in step with the spirit which are more, you're following the good shepherd, that's an interpersonal relationship. You're doing incredibly well. How old are you? 13. Oh man, that's fantastic. 13, and he's paying attention to my talk. That's enough there, I'll just leave it there, I don't feel satisfied for the evening. I got, I got interested in theology when I was 13 actually. This very summer, summer between 12 to 13 was when I started reading theology books, so. <laughs> yeah, he'll, he'll be talking to his parents he'll be talking to his parents on the way home and be like yeah 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 that's put me off theology <laughs> put me on yeah, he, he went 13 towards theology and this guy is going to be like never again never again <laughs> yeah, no, good. good 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 job paying attention I'll stop embarrassing you um, okay so so Mar Marilyn McCord Adams and these guys have responded by saying, okay, we've got problems with the sharing model. Yeah, okay, sometimes it may work, but it doesn't do justice to the everyday relationship that a that person has with God through the Holy Spirit. And they've tried to put the emphasis on the interpersonal. I'm going to add, I'm going to add then my, my two cents um, now. So, so I think I sympathize with Marilyn Court Adams. This doesn't quite do justice to the everyday life of the believer. Um, it can work sometimes, but not all of the times. But what I, the, the way I want to push my criticism is, okay, Alston, you're pushed towards the sharing model because you think the other two are too external. But I want to ask how internal really is the sharing model? Okay, yeah. How internal, uh, I found awesome. How internal is the sharing model? Okay. 
Now this will get a wee bit tactical, but only last five minutes. So if you don't like it, just <laughs> hold your breath and be over with quickly. Okay. Um, okay. So Alston rejects possession. Okay. So there's the op there's the option that the Holy Spirit just possesses us, and what we say is we say because that's just the Holy Spirit. We have no free will. We have no control. But Alston's like, no, that won't work. Uh, there's got to be free will. So. If we reject possession, we got Fred again. Okay, so Fred has become a Christian. He's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he's having the, these thoughts, okay? Some of the thoughts are his own thoughts. Some of the thoughts are the Holy Spirit's thoughts, okay? And Alston's like, this is brilliant. Fred's having these thoughts. The Holy Spirit's internal. My model is fantastic. But I'm like, oh, Alston, hold on a second. Hold on a second. Um... This thought, this thought that he's having, in what sense is it really internal? Okay, Fred's sitting here, he's having this thought, the Holy Spirit gives him the thought, the world is beautiful, okay? I don't know if that's the sort of thought the Holy Spirit has, but it may be, okay? It could be the sort of thought. The world is beautiful and Fred has it, okay? It comes through Fred's brain, Fred's physiology, okay? But it, its source is the Holy Spirit, Okay. But is this really Fred's thought? This is my question. Is this really Fred's thought? Is it really internal to him? If you look to Fred, you say, Fred, what were you thinking there? Oh, I was just thinking that the world is beautiful. Oh, nice, man. That's a good thought. Yeah, the world is beautiful. I agree. Is that something you think? Yeah, uh, no. Actually, uh, no. No, no. That, that just came to me from somewhere. Uh, oh, where did you come from, Fred? Uh... Ah, yeah, from the Holy Spirit. Sherry model, classic. Yeah, yeah, that was the Holy Spirit. <laughs> that was the Holy Spirit. Um, okay, so was that your thought, Fred? Uh, uh, look, tough question, tough question. It came about, yeah, definitely wasn't a voice from outside. It came about through my brain. Okay, it came through my brain, so in some sense it's my... But it wasn't really my thought. It wasn't really... So, so, so Fred, would you, say that, would you say that I thought that the world is beautiful? You're saying, oh. I don't really know if I would. Okay. My my concern here, or my suggestion with uh, Alston's model, is that even though he's pushed towards this somewhat really full-on model called the Sherry model to try and get internality, it's not even clear to me that it gets internality. Okay. Because the thought that Fred has, even though it comes through his own brain. It's still not his thought. It's still not in uh, him in the sense of it's not. It's not the case. It's not the case that Fred says, "I think that the world is beautiful." Okay. Because of that, in my view, this is what I'm arguing. There's still externality there. Okay. Alston's been pushed to this model to try and try and try and find internality. Well, I'm pushing back and I'm saying, no, it strikes me that there's still externality there. Because this thought that Fred's having, the world is beautiful, can he say that I think the world is beautiful? Well, he might say, well, I now think that the world is beautiful, but the first thought I had wasn't my own thought. It was, it was someone else's. And that, to me, to my mind, suggests externality. Even in he's Alston's been driven this far to find internality, but it seems to my mind that there's still externality there because the thought is not Fred's. Okay. 
So instead, my suggestion, this, this if you if you haven't liked that sort of little technical minute or two, do not worry, we're moving into the nice stuff again. <laughs> moving into the nice stuff, okay? So my suggestion, um, why, why don't we just accept that uh, God is omnipresent? Okay, God is present everywhere. So um, God can't really get any more internal than he already is. Okay? God is present everywhere. He's present at the core of your being. He's present at the core of everything. He cannot get any more internal. So when we talk about the filling of the Holy Spirit, we've got to be talking about something a bit different. It's not about God getting somewhere that he wasn't previously. It's got to be about something different. And when you're looking for inspiration in life, theological inspiration, there's one guy you've got to go to every so often. This guy here. Okay? This guy here. Thomas Aquinas. 13th century philosophical theological heavyweight. Man's a legend. Summa Theologica was his main work. Summary of Theology, all right? Wrote a lot of amazing stuff. Summary of theology. Incredibly bright man. Not the most interesting life. Very bright man. Okay. And he talked about uh, the sending of the Holy Spirit. When God sends his Holy Spirit into people. Okay. And he said this. If we go to the next one. He said, the sending of the Holy Spirit. So, so say, Fred's converted. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit into Fred. Okay. Sending of the Holy Spirit can imply one of two things. He says, either because in no way was he present before in the place where he is sent, or because he begins to be there in some way in which he was not there hitherto. Let me explain. Let me explain. First part. Two types of sending. First type. He comes to be present in a place um, uh, where... Sorry, let me just here because in no way was he present. Yeah, so he comes to be present where he wasn't. So here, if you send me, what's your name? Victoria. Victor, Victoria and lives in Victoria. Victoria from Victoria sends me to here, okay? So if you send me, just say go or something like that. Go. Okay, so I go here, okay? So I wasn't previously here, but now I'm here, okay? This is for Aquinas, the first type of sending, okay? So I'm not, I'm here, I'm not there. Victoria says go, I go, and now I'm here. Okay, second type, or because he begins to be there in some way in which he was not there hitherto. Victoria, <laughs> tell me to mime. Mime. Okay, I'm still here, I'm still in the same place, but I'm, I'm here in a new way, I'm miming, okay? <laughs> See that? I'm miming. <laughs> Two different types of sending. Two different types of sending. One is, I'm not there, but I'm now there because Victoria sent me. The other is, I'm here, I'm still here, but I'm here in a new way. I was just standing, I'm now miming. Okay? This is Aquinas' thought. So Aquinas is like, no, because of omnipresence, when we talk about God sending the Holy Spirit to fill people, it cannot be the first type. Okay? There's no use in us saying, God puts the Holy Spirit there where it wasn't previously because the Holy Spirit was already there because of omnipresence. Okay? Rather, when God sends the Holy Spirit to fill us, he, 
he sends the Holy Spirit to be present where, where he already was in a new way, doing something different. Okay. Does that make sense? Because that's sort of the key to my mm-hmm. proposal. Any questions about that? Just, yep. Is that a new way in your awareness? Good. Um, let me, let me, I'm going to take that in about two minutes once I've explained to me that's good. Okay. So, Aquinas' proposal, yep. So wouldn't it be like you'd be there still, and then you mine? Um, like in my idea of salvation, God's... So the idea is that God is already here because he's omnipresent. So in everything, in trees, in non-Christians, in Christians, whatever, God's already there because he's omnipresent. He's, he's there everywhere. Okay. But Aquinas' yeah. suggestion is that although he's already there, if you convert and start going to church and all that kind of stuff, God is there, but he's doing something different in you that he wasn't doing beforehand. Does that make sense? I think so. Let me okay. think about it. Yep. Maybe this is a question for yep, later. Go for it. For it. But, um, so, uh, one premise is that God is omnipresent. Right, yeah. Another premise is that Jesus is God. Um, well, yeah, yeah. Right? Not of this argument, but, yeah, to make the whole... Yeah, sure, fine. So, therefore, is Jesus omnipresent? Um, can we do that afterwards? Yeah, yeah that's a good, good question. We'll do that afterwards, so that's good. Yep. I mean, could you think of it like holding a glass of water and dropping some ice cubes in? Yeah, good, good. Something like that. Dropping some, dropping some, uh, some yeah, uh, orange juice that changed it. Yeah, it's good. Still water. Yeah. I don't know if this is helpful or probably just my own clarification, but your t- starting with omnipresence is making me realize that I do, I do think of God as omnipresent, but I have thought of Him as omnipresent, but inside no one. Yeah. Not, not inside anyone. Yeah. Until they became. Yeah. Good. So it's like omnipresent around the world, but like yeah. up to yeah. skin good. people or good, something. Good. So just thinking it through. Yeah, it's good. So as this uh, gentleman mentioned, uh, first one of the premises of this here is that God is omnipresent. So not everyone's going to get on board with that. Okay. Some people might say no, God isn't present everywhere. If God isn't pre- present ev- everywhere, then this isn't so much a problem because you could just say, okay, God wasn't present in this person, and then. The Holy Spirit comes and now he is present and that's that's a problem solved. So this is only a problem if you think that God is omnipresent. Um, yeah. yeah. Okay. So let's let's just finish it off with then with another analogy. Is this by a chap called O'Mahony? This is trying to explain this idea of um, being present in a new way. So a man has been attending his office for many years as a clerk. In the office, there is also a director of the firm. This director dies, and there is great speculation in, in the office as to who will be sent to take his place. To their amazement, they find that the new director is none other than the clerk. Now, the new director cannot be said to be sent to the office in the sense that he was not there before, but he can be said to be sent in the sense that he is now there, but in a new capacity or new modes. Okay, you don't need to worry about the last sentence. So you've got a clerk, he's in the office, but he's the clerk. The manager dies, suddenly, okay, there's supposed to someone to be the manager. The clerk gets it. Was the clerk there beforehand? Yes, the clerk was already, already there, but he's now there in a new form. Okay. The, uh, the Holy Spirit is the clerk, right? 
Clark is the Holy Spirit. On the, the model I'm defending, uh, God is present in all of us, but when we get when we're reconciled to Christ, um, the Holy Spirit does not become more present, but He acts in us. He is present in us in a different way. Okay, sorts of things that the Holy Spirit might be doing is changing us. Um, bringing about the moral virtues, the theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity, bringing about the gifts of the Spirit, the fruits of the Spirit, bringing us into relationship with God. Okay. So my response to this question of how it is that you can fill something that is already full, I think um, the models that Alston talks about are good and interesting, and, and I want to affirm them all in part, but I think the way to deal with the internality question is not to push for the sharing model, but rather to just let go of it, say that, that what we're talking about with filling, the filling of the Holy Spirit, is not that God becomes present where he, where he wasn't already, but rather that God just starts to be present in a different way because he's acting, because he's acting in us. So that is my talk, and I look forward to objections. <laughs> as an external thing mm. and man is without excuse because of creation mm. whereas if he was already in them mm. thank you um, yeah so yeah that's good um, I can't I can't really give a good answer to that question without giving a talk on omnipresence <laughs> um, not everyone's on board with omnipresence a lot in the Christian tradition are. Um, but it depends what that means. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. I, I, I am very on board with it, but not in the way you said it. So, well, I, I, okay, but on, on your view then... Sorry? That they'd be in a non-Christian, that they'd be in a serial killer. Like to what extent yeah. is the presence of God... I mean, we are made in His image. Yeah. So. So on, on your view then, God... God isn't present everywhere then. The yes, idea of, he would be present all around them. Yeah. He is he is everywhere. But But not every who? <laughs> <laughs> if he's not in them then though he's not everywhere, right? Well Because there's a place inside Fred before he Is he in animals? So we can discuss that, but my point is that if he's not in animals then he's then arguably he's not omnipresent and that is fine you can get off the board and say I don't so is there a, a, a definition of the, the correct definition of omnipresence being permeating every single cell and, and my understanding yeah, yeah my understanding of it well there's two there's two ways to understand omnipresence um one is to say, and this is what the medievals thought, one is to say that God is present to absolutely everything. 
because he creates it and holds it in being. Okay, so because God created, well, he created you, arguably, billions of years ago, but he still holds you in being. So God is present to you because he created you and holds you in being. Okay, so you're an effect of his. So that's the medieval view. There's a view that's come out recently from a guy in Washington University called Hudson and a guy in Baylor called Alexander Proust. And they think God is not so much present to everything because he holds them all in being, but he's present to, he, God is like actually spatially present everywhere. Okay, and it's, um, it's a pretty full on metaphysical view. These are incredibly smart philosophers and Christians that hold it. Um, I don't really know how to make sense of that, but they think that God is is literally everywhere. And I say literally, I mean literally everywhere, but obviously you can't see him because he is non-physical. So there's different understandings of omnipresence. It is incredibly complex. Um, And this is only a problem if you buy into a view that God is present everywhere. Do you want to push back on that? I'm just... uh looking at it from a different way that I, I, I've never looked at it. Yeah. I, I've just assumed that, yes, he created us, we are in his image, um, but that he is not in us, his spirit is not in us until we're born again. Mm. And then, subsequent to that, yeah. we are filled. Yeah, yeah, good. Well, you you can, but I you can hold it. that. My my point is that you can hold that. Um, this argument um, takes as a premise that God is omnipresent, but not everyone needs to hold that. Um, yeah. It's interesting. Okay. Um, I have no, yeah, I have no idea of the order. So yeah, go for it. Just curious. Uh, I guess. Well, okay. So stick with. I got a lot of. <laughs> but yeah. what would you do with um, biblical uh, some of the New Testament? Um, testimony such as Peter's um, speech in Acts 2 where he talks about that um, this is the day that Joel spoke of when God would yeah. pour his spirit on all flesh there seems to be something happening there, something yeah. different in history how, yeah. how does that how does Yeah, that good. so on my model you just have to say yeah there is something different in history happening there and that's because God is acting in human beings in a different way, so bringing about in the case of Peter uh, the gifts of the Holy Spirit do you want to go for another question as well? Oh well, just just to revisit the issue of oh yeah, Jesus being omnipresent because I don't it doesn't seem that he is yeah right right right, right. and this is in fact why he says to the disciples before he dies don't worry it's better that I die because I yeah. can send the Spirit who can be present in everybody yeah, so yeah, how does yeah. that all fit in yeah okay good so Jesus according to the creeds is one person two natures Jesus in virtue of his human nature isn't present everywhere right because he's got a hand and a face and a brain and everything okay so he's not present everywhere uh i think the view is that jesus in in virtue of his divine nature as the second person of the trinity is present everywhere okay um but wouldn't you call that christ rather than jesus um i so i'm using so i'm using g yeah jesus christ jesus christ to describe the 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 person that walked the earth that was one person two uh two natures Okay, so the, 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 the second person of the Trinity is present everywhere. Um, in the same way, arguably, I mean, this brings up loads of interesting discussions, but arguably the second person of the Trinity is also all-knowing, omniscient. Right. So Jesus 
knows all things, but then uh, there's yeah. a debate as to whether that comes out in his human form. So maybe that his divine nature knows all things, but his human nature maybe needs to learn things. Okay, um, but anyway, that's that's another interesting discussion. could could that lead to kind of a form of modalism where you've now split the nature of Jesus kind of too too much? You know, too. Um, is Jesus human in his in his human nature? Is yeah. he God? Or only in his God nature. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> so the the Orthodox view is that it's only his divine the person and his divine nature that is God. Yeah. Um, right. Not his and human. When he was nature. walking on earth, he gave up certain parts of his divine nature. I've heard this guy mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean this one. is really interesting stuff in the doctrine of the incarnation. My understanding is that when he yeah, when he when he came on earth, so he's when he's on earth because when he's in heaven, when he's in heaven, he's just the second person of the Trinity. There's no human nature there pre the incarnation. So when he's on earth, it's the human person and the divine nature and the human nature. Um, the some theologians think that yes, in taking upon a human nature, he had to give up some things. Um, for example, he had to give up being limitless. Okay, so a lot of people think God is beyond, he has no limits, but as soon as you become a human person, you do have limits. Because you're time you're, and space. You're in yeah, time you're in time and space and stuff, yeah. Yeah, you're a physical body. Yeah. Elizabeth, you want to? Yeah, my question was more to do with the omnipresence um, issue and how, what the spirit's relationship to evil is. Yeah. Um, because, yeah, it, if God is present everywhere in the world, but also evil is present yeah. in everyone and everything, the bro- brokenness, um, sin, then in what way can the spirit and evil dwell together? Yeah, yeah, good. So on the medieval view, um, um, and I'm not as hot on omnipresence as I am on this stuff, but my, my understanding would be on the medieval view, God upholds and is present to the rapist as he rapes, or the thief as he steals, or the liar as he lies. So he upholds him in being and is present to all of him. Um, but well, at least in my theology isn't um, certainly doesn't approve of what he's doing and, and isn't isn't um, pushing him to do what he does. It's his own free will. When you say upholds, like like is the source of being? Mm, yeah. Yeah, this this is why I think uh, doing a whole lecture on omnipresence would be really good. Um, he, for Aquinas, it's all about cause and effect. So God causes us to be, uh, and there's a sense in which God right now has caused me to be through the whole history of of natural causations. There's a sense that God causes me to be now. I am the effect, and. Um, the cause is for Aquinas, and we, we need, I say we need to do another talk on it. Um, the cause is present to the effect, in the same way that as if I slap that there, the cause is my finger slapping it, and the the, the effect is the noise, the noise coming off the um, thingy. There's a sense that the cause is present to the effect, so God is present to all of His effects. It's Aquinas, yeah. Good. I can, I mean, just taking it, tying Liz's statement and uh, to your quote here by Patrick Mahani. Yeah. Uh, is that it seems that, you know, what what character does God play in the person who is the rapist, the stealer, yeah. the liar? 
and that he sustains his being. Yeah, that's right. He allows him to yeah. breathe. That he breathes and that his life is not taken from him is all seen as that's right, power. Yeah. But, uh, you know, with Ahab, you know, he, he looks at Elijah and he says, oh, you've come to visit me, my enemy. Mm. And it's really God who has come to him through Elijah. And yeah. he sees God as his enemy. But God is at work there. Yeah. And, and he doesn't want to submit himself until he comes to recognize who God is. And then he, he laments in some limited fashion. But I wonder if we might be able to, to make that bridge in this sense that God, was, God is upholding the person's being in his kindness, mm. but the person holds him as his enemy. Right. Yeah. And not Lord. Yeah. And so the, yeah, the place I, that has taken the change is okay. Now I submit myself to you as my yeah. my Lord and my Redeemer. Yeah, I like that. I like that uh, that metaphor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense with what Paul says in Romans, talking about not being able to please God without the Spirit. Um, yeah. yeah. Should, just just as we're listening to discussion, should we also be careful of um, to use a technical term? Giving evil an ontological status, or is, is, it, is it more helpful to follow? Like, you know, Augustine's kind of a concept that evil doesn't have evil in a sense doesn't exist. It's yeah. A yeah. So evil is not omnipresent. Um, it's just that the lack of goodness exists. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I don't sure. Know if that's helpful. Sure, sure. Yeah, I suppose to to push the objection, you could say that okay, well, what about cancer? Is God? In, right. in cancer, yeah. um, if you wanted to have something that does have some sort of ontological status, and then you'd mm. have to say, well, okay, God, mm. God upholds cancer, yeah, right, right. when he's not working in it. Good. Yeah, mm. yeah go for it, Mike. If you think of the Holy Spirit as being the energy inside you, think of it as a gas that's under pressure. Yeah, sure. When you become a Christian, yeah, uh, you've simply given direction to that in order for something to happen. Yeah. The power, the force was always there. Yeah. But until you become a Christian, it doesn't have a direction or a yeah. force. It's what provides God. It's God's will providing you going in a certain direction. But it needs two things to happen. In. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it, it doesn't happen from your own actions. It just simply, your actions simply allow it to do it. Yeah. So it was always there. So if you're not a Christian, it's there. I'm not explaining very well. No, no, I, I like the I like the analogy, and that's yeah, in keeping it's with mine. It's there. Yeah. But all you're doing is by saying, "I believe in Jesus," you've suddenly given it a, a direction, yeah. and, and that has an effect. Okay. Yeah, that's a, that's a helpful analogy. That's that's in line with the, the model I'm putting. Here. So that wouldn't be considered errors. <laughs> um, well, this yeah, this stuff isn't considered her it's not um core enough to be heretical uh, it's too it's too um i'd have to say something like the holy spirit isn't truly god or something like that and that would be heretical because it's in um out of step with the creeds um, yeah so well, what you're saying isn't heretical in the sense that it agrees with me but uh want to be, uh, be the safeguard of heresy now you asked a question earlier which was or do you have to be aware of it? I think that's a really good question. That ties into what our lunchtime discussion today. And uh, yeah, it strikes me that you wouldn't need to be aware of it. Um, and that's a much bigger discussion, but it could be, it could be that you would, uh, yeah, I don't know if we want to open this kind of words, but it could be <laughs> that you would become a Christian 
It seems plausible. Say you're in Papua New Guinea, three hundred years ago when there were there was no um, there was no gospel, um, and it seems plausible to me that God could convert people without using human beings, and they would have some sort of inner change that goes on, but they wouldn't be aware of it. Mm-hmm. Seems plausible to me, but that's a different debate. Mm-hmm. Well, that comes back to the scripture: man is without excuse because of creation. Right. So what, and he comes and we've heard testimony of dreams and yeah. dreams. And yeah. 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 I, I sort of agree with that. Yeah. Yep. Go for it. There is an injunction in the New Testament uh, that we should be filled with the Spirit continually. I don't know if anybody can say where that comes from. Yeah. Am I uh, online on what I'm. That's. Quoting? Yeah. Um, if so, um, the original. Greek, as I recall, uh, states that that word continually means that it is continuous as well as continually, that it is a continuing, ever happening uh, um, demand, request, be filled with the Spirit. Mm. It's a continuous thing. Um, And the fact that it just begins with be filled rather than you are filled. But it's, it seems to indicate to me this internalizing that happens because there is an onus on the Christian to do something about it, mm. not just to let this yeah. uh, external take over. Mm. Um, and what's more, it's a not a one-off. Mm. Yeah, yeah. yeah I like that. 518, yeah. do not be drunk of wine, but be filled. And it's the Greek tense, right? I only have Latin, I don't have Greek, so <laughs> <laughs> I can't actually help there, but, um, it's a, yeah, present continuous, keep on being okay. filled. Yeah, yeah, I think I got it slightly right, I think it's be filled with the spirit, but the meaning mm-hmm. of be filled is the continuous yeah. tense. So then, I, as I understand it, that would be, you'd be siding with Marla McCord Adams in her criticism yes. of the sharing model, yes. right? So yeah. you'd be thinking this doesn't, this, this sort of hearing God's voice as if it's one of our own thoughts, and may Maybe it works sometimes, but it's not a continuous thing. Yeah. Any other? Yep. Yeah, go for it. I'd always thought of God's omnipresence almost as if it's it's God the Father, the face of God. Yeah. And then when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, that's the other aspect coming yeah. in that God could send to Papua yeah. New Guinea. Yeah. But, and that's where there's a bit of relationship or there's hmm. something internal so is that not part of this argument or is yeah that that's good somewhere? that's good yeah <laughs> mm. yeah so it gets into the doctrine of the trinity which as you know is an insanely complex because <laughs> you need to try and explain how god could be one god but three persons and avoid all the things that our irish friends were talking about earlier um yeah because Because you, what you want to, you need to avoid saying that God is there, God the Father is there, but God the, God the Son isn't there. Um, because there, it's one God. I don't, yeah, I don't really know if I can do much with that without getting into a lecture on, on the Trinity. Um, I'd lean towards the view that if, if God's there, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are there. 
So when in, when in uh, Jesus' baptism, you've got Jesus and the voice from heaven from the Father saying, you're my beloved son, and the, the Holy Spirit comes down in the dove. Although for us, that's three, it's th they seem to be three different places. Um, I would lean towards the view that really what's going on there is, is God is present. Um, but yeah, this is one of the biggest mysteries of the Christian faith that the Muslims don't need to, to uh, worry about. <laughs> yeah. I, this is popping my head, but can God be there, but be there more densely? Mm. I think my, so my, the view I'm putting forward would say that God could be, yeah, working more densely. I, that, I know that doesn't work grammatically, but you get the point. God could be working more fully in one place rather than in another. Um, would he be there more fully? Mm, I don't know what it would mean for him to be there more fully, but he could be working more fully. More I think. Active. Do you want to push Luke, back against that? This person's had a hand up. Okay, sorry. That's what I said. Uh, I, I can't. Someone should share it for me. Um, do you want to come back on that? Can no. I just add yeah, go for it. What about the idea that I mean, Christians can could still be in bondage if you're believing yeah. in spiritual warfare with demonic with spirits yeah so that if the holy spirit comes in gets it right like fill your house get rid of yeah. the spirit so that you can be filled with the holy spirit so yeah. god can be more present when we get rid of yeah yeah good so and this came up a moment ago when someone asked a question there's a huge obviously huge theological debate as to how all this happens. Is it is it that Fred just converts and then suddenly he's filled with the Holy Spirit? Is it that he converts in bit by bit? Is there other different things you can do that mean you're more filled with the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is working in your life more? Is um, getting rid of things in your life? Yeah. So I my yeah, my sense is yeah, it seems it seems highly plausible that um, there are different things that we can do. Different practices that we can stop uh, different thing um, different other practices that we can start in different ways we can motivate ourselves in the way that would uh, incre uh, increase in the sense of being more open to God's the Holy Spirit's work in our life yeah so I think I sort of agree with you does that sound right yeah can I add something? I, yeah, I know. I know. Yeah, and then we'll go to our, we'll go to our door. And I just want to say that just, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, just like the clerk going from the director that maybe more densely uh, would just be allowing God to act more authoritatively in each realm of life. Is that what you were going to say? More in that direction. Okay, you go ahead. Yeah. Um, I was going to say that one thing that hasn't really been mentioned in the term is more mm. of that relationship side of it, where mm. as a Christian, the whole life, part of it is the relationship with God yeah. and as you spend more time getting to know his word and getting to well know him mm. the your relationship builds same yeah. idea as if it's a family if it's friends yeah. the more time you spend with them the more you're going to know them right. an analogy I, this is an analogy I've heard um, that you can poke holes at there's definitely going to be holes in everything when it comes to analogies but um, that if you are a person that's all of us are not perfect is like a cup of water that has dirt or things spilled into it. Yeah. And the more um, you let the Holy Spirit pour into your life, the more that overflow comes in and that dirt comes yeah. out as yeah. more of the Holy Spirit is filling right. you. And right. here on earth, like that's, it's never going to be perfect, but the more 
of that development there is um, with God, the more you're listening to his word, the more you're reading. And there's more of that development even in community that's going to yeah. um, more open your eyes to God around you. Yeah. And I think with the omnipresent, I'm going to jump a little bit. I've been thinking about this. Do it. Give me waiting to do it. And when it comes to like the omnipresent side of it, I more thought of it with God seeing everything, mm. where he can be there, but seeing so as if me being in a room, I can see everything. I can see yeah. all the books. I can see the walls. Mm. And it doesn't mean I'm physically in a wall. Mm. I don't know. Maybe God is. Mm. Um, but mm. I'm part of it all. And when it comes mm. to that as well, there's still that further development where God can see into our minds. I know because it talks mm. about thoughts and I'm not sure that means physically in your brain or mm. if it's he can hear the silence mm. um, and even I was just rereading Genesis recently where it even talks about um, when the world started to fall apart further mm. um, with but just before the flood and the Lord says the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time mm. and so it's him seeing the evil that's happening, but also seeing the thoughts um, mm. and not being a part of it, of yeah. the evil itself, but seeing that. And yeah. then it goes on for him saying um, how deeply troubled he was mm. about this and makes a decision because yeah, of good, that. Yeah, good. So I think my, my, my question to you would be then, how is this divine seen different from omniscience? That's so, the thing. I'm saying that they're the same thing. They're the same? No, no, omniscience. Like, or, Oh, okay. So, omni so omnipresence, God's present ever. Yes. Omniscience, God knows everything. Okay. So, given that, because I know you're you're using the metaphor of God seeing, so God doesn't actually see. How would God seeing everything differ from Him knowing everything? Um, so God knows that in this room, uh, we're speaking. He knows that in China. This there's a, so in a sense He sees it, but He sees it in the sense that He knows it. So what I'm trying to do is distinguish between what you're saying, how, if that's different from the quality of omniscience of all-knowing mm -hmm. so you're saying that knowing that's be. happened is different than understanding my, my what I, my question is is it different to see that something's happening oh, as opposed to something oh, to, to know that it's happening um, because if there may be a difference if there is no difference then this scene that you're talking about is is really omniscience um, and you wouldn't, you could just get rid of om omnipresence altogether. Do you want me to run through that really quickly once more? So you got om omnipresence, omniscience. If you're saying omni omnipresence is uh, seeing everything, what I'm saying is, okay, how is that different from God being all-knowing, given that he knows everything? If it is different, um, it'd be interesting to know. If it's not different, then you can just get rid of omnipresence and just say God sees everything in the sense that he knows everything. Um, in terms of your first point, yeah, 100%. So that's, uh, Aquinas' view is that God, when God fills us with his Holy Spirit, he brings about a whole bunch of things. He brings in the moral virtues, fruits of the Holy Spirit, gifts of the Holy Spirit, and the theological virtues. And these are the key ones for relationship. Faith, whereby we know about God and charity through which we love God. That, that brings the relationship. So the filling brings about uh, the relationship, at least for Aquinas. Uh, yeah. So the, that young boy was ahead of me. Okay. So he had his hand up. Did you not? No. Okay. <laughs> okay I, I thought I saw you. <laughs> um, so I've decided I don't like theology. I don't want to ask questions. No, sorry, yeah. I, I just didn't want to jump on. the last talk I come to. Um, the, um, 
I don't want to go down this 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 rabbit hole, but there was but something was said over there that, that or something was said actually from you in, in response. The difference between um, um, omniscience and omnipresence mm. is seeing the same as knowing, and right. I, uh, not from a place of theology, but from a place of philosophy and just thinking about things. I. Uh, knowledge and perception are very different things, at least in for the, human beings. For, okay, perhaps, yeah. and perhaps it would be different in a divine context. And I'll leave that to the theologians. Um, the, if you don't mind, I want to yeah, come at it from the from the perspective of methodology. And yeah, so I want to speak to the methodology. The earlier to, part of the talk, to, yeah. To the content, yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, for context, I am Joshua, the friendly neighborhood heathen. Um, uh, I come to this. Uh, to your friend before converting. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, you, you, you better hope John Stoltz right, not Jack uh, Parker. No, sorry. Banter. It's banter. It's good Irish all good. banter. All good. Let's good. go for it. So okay, the um, so you you started right at the beginning, laying out basically your epistemological methodology, in which we you, you said, look, we've got three stools. We've got a primary, secondary, and tertiary um, pillar for for arriving at theological knowledge being scripture, reason, and tradition. Um, is, is that the correct order? Would, or would uh, it's probably the, yeah, it's scripture, order? tradition, reason. Would, would tradition go before reason? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, that's, that's fine. Um, and so then you, and then starting with that methodology, you were able to, uh, or starting with those pillars, you were, you were then allowed, able to inter, interrelate these three things yeah. and arrive at all sorts of interesting concepts and, yeah. and things to probe and prod about. Um, but not having bought in, I, I don't. I'm not part of the project of uh, Fides Quorum Intellectum. I'm yeah. not faith seeking. Yeah. There, there, there's no. Uh, I, I haven't accepted the pillars. Yeah. So do you? Do you, is, do you have? Uh, do you ever find that there is? Um, once you've come up with a with an interesting concept by this methodology, uh, my question would be co corroboration through a, another. Form of epistemology, say, yeah. say um, science that relies on observation and reason, right? So, yeah. so there, or, or something, uh, some other process yeah. of knowing, yeah, or yeah. a way of knowing. I'm using the word epistemology, but I mean way of knowing. Yeah. Um, in order to sort of triangulate yeah. on a certain truth, or 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 are theologians content to use these three pillars, just start yeah. there, end there, have yeah. a good time there? Yeah. Good. Really good question. Um, I will say one of the a really interesting paper I heard years ago at a graduate seminar was given it was about the resurrection of the dead so when Christians die and their bodies are then resurrected and it was a given by a guy who's an atheist but he was he was poking holes in the concept of the resurrection of the dead and he was he was taking on board Christian assumptions and saying given you have these assumptions your model doesn't work and here's why so I think even the first point, and then I'll get to your main point, the first point is even if you don't get on board with the, the assumptions, you can say, okay, I, I'm going to grant you those assumptions, tradition, reason, scripture, and I'm going to poke holes in your model nevertheless. So I think that can be a fun thing for you to do in the same way that I can do it about an atheist uh, assumptions and stuff. But getting to your actual question, um, yeah, I think, I, I think there are good reasons to believe in God. I think there are good reasons to then get from God to Christianity and scripture and all that sort of stuff um, so I'm happy to take those assumptions and happy to take scripture and tradition although I want to keep thinking about them I don't think I don't think you're going to have much success with the natural sciences in terms of this stuff 
um, that's my gut reaction. So if you look at, so say you took Fred pre and post conversion, um, I so you could see, I'm sure you could see moral changes, etc. And it would be interesting to do it. It would be, and, and there's a guy called Justin Barrett in, in a, down in California who does this sort of stuff, cognitive science of religion. Yeah, it'd be interesting to do it. Yeah, and I, I don't know how. I don't know what it's going to give you, other than this is interesting. <laughs> I don't know if it's going to radically change the theory. But what do you, what do you think? I, I, part of me was I was going to mention um, in my question. Um, uh, very famously, uh, in 1907, a guy named Duncan McDonald, uh, sorry, McDougall, um, came up with the idea that the soul weighs 21 grams because he was trying to weigh people before and after they had died and, and on their deathbed. Yeah. And, and, you know, so, sort of heart, you know, once the blood so star stopped, and that he was able to, in some people, sort of get a little bit of a difference. Right. And, and so, like, to me, it, and yet, I don't really see that as. as I see that as being something rather full of holes. Right. In, it in seems philosophically absurd to yeah, imagine. Because the soul is immaterial. If you're a substance mm -hmm. dualist, the soul is immaterial. Right. And if you're a, um, if you hold to the hylomorphism, then the soul is just part of the body. So it seems weird that you couldn't measure the soul, right? I right. don't know why I did but, that. But, but it, yeah, well, you know, it's, it's kind of fun to do. Yeah, it's it, interesting. It seems, that it's, it, it seems in, in some... In, in some some regard, like it, it it's a it's abstractions built upon abstractions built upon abstractions, and then at what point do you come back to planet Earth? Um, yeah, so yeah, so you need to get on board with the. We can do a talk yeah. on does God exist and have fun with that. Okay. Um, yeah, but it, I, that doesn't seem problematic because we we build our systems on all sorts of things. So, um, you know, when we do ethics, we build it on the view that either moral objective truth exists or not and that's an assumption that you bring to the table when you start to debate whether abortion is right or wrong so you build theories on lower assumptions that you bring to the world um, that we build theories upon previous assumptions doesn't seem problematic to me but um, it's good fun to yeah get into those lower assumptions yeah sure. all right thanks yeah cool. yeah i guess kind of building on what this gentleman's been talking about yeah i, I did take so I didn't get through it all, but I, um, I managed to find your thesis online. I did read some of it, and um, oh dear, you were <laughs> oh, for you. Um, that's okay. It was, huh. it was it was interesting for what I understood, <laughs> but um, for you. But you're you're do you have a background in analytic philosophy, do you, or or you're? Yeah, one of my supervisors like was yeah, one of my supervisors is an analytic philosopher. The other was a theologian. Okay. Yeah. So could this be a case where we're applying a tool set to the problem? Yeah. That may not be the best tool set for the yeah, problem. Good, like good, good. That's what I. Yeah, good, really good. That's what this book's about by McGilchrist. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah, brilliant question. So I suppose my thought at the moment. So what analytic philosophers do is they look at the problem, they try and break it down into smaller problems, isolate. Uh, what's going on and then come up with models and, and, and theories and stuff. So the question is whether that's the best way to deal with this um, and it's a good one. I suppose I so I, I acknowledge that this is faith seeking understanding and these models aren't going to fully capture what's going on necessarily so it's maybe our best effort at it but I also think that you could try and you could take a different approach you could take an approach of art 
you could ask painters to see uh, how they could convey the filling of the Holy Spirit. You could ask a musician to do that, or a poet to do that, someone to do it through poetry. And I would be equally open to hearing a talk from a painter about his or her paintings about this here. So this is very much my two cents as a theologian, but 100%, 100% that um, the artists and everyone else have their go at explaining it. Yeah, definitely, that's a really good point. I mean, the thing that helped me the yeah. most, because I'm a fairly new Christian, Yeah. the thing that's helped me the most in understanding some of these complicated things is to think of it as a, a situation where we can't know the real reality, mm. and we're just simply using analogies to understand mm. it as best we can, and that's going to lead to paradoxes. So the, the paradox of looking at light as both a wave and a particle, neither one is correct, mm. but they're both necessary to actually understand it. But mm. you need to understand that your understanding is not 100%. Yeah. We can't know mm. God completely because we're finite and He's infinite. Yeah. And so with using that methodology, I just, it's a paradox. It, it, yeah. it's, it they're mutually exclusive, but it still works. Yeah, that's that's really good. Um, yeah, so, so we're all going to be on board, I think, with saying that God's beyond our understanding. The question is that what, can, can we say anything? Can we say anything at all? Christians traditionally have wanted to say that we can, and at least you get that in the creeds. Most people would say that you have to, we are saying something that's true in the creeds. So um, it's a fascinating discussion between, okay, we can't say everything. Can we say anything? And on the question of contradictions, yeah, hmm, can God be both exist and not exist? Can God be both good and not good? Can God be both omnipresent and present? My background as someone who's trained in analytic philosophy is to think, no, that, 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 that there's a problem there, that God either exists or he doesn't exist. Well, but, I wasn't, I wasn't yeah, do so, so, so thinking of fundamental things like yeah. that, but more the paradox of, of the Trinity. Trinity. Trinity, yeah, 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 good, sorry, I, yeah, yeah, I know you weren't and, suggesting and that. The, the analogies from science of waves and particles, yeah. because that's one that yeah. I understood and learned when I was growing up. Yeah, yeah. Good. Right, you know, yeah. And waves and particles are just two different ways of looking at light. Yeah. But neither one is correct. Mm -hmm. But they're models that assist us. It's like with determinism. Um, you know, uh, is everything predetermined? Yeah. Or do we have free will? And I mean, the way I've looked at it is, well, regardless of whether it's predetermined or not, I have to act as if I have free will. Yeah. Because that's mm -hmm. the only way I can function. Yeah. I guess that's good. So then the Trinity is a perfect example and free yeah. will determinism are good. I guess my, I'm inclined to think that if I am inclined to think that although it may seem like there's a contradiction in saying God is one, but yet three, and there's no division between the three, I'm inclined to think that it may seem like there's a contradiction there, but actually if you really drill down or if maybe in the afterlife when we see things fully, that there won't be a contradiction there, but that's that's getting into some of sort of the theological method. Clark, I'm on you with time. Um, I'm. This is my day job, so I'll, I'll do it all day. But um, okay. Thank you. It, it, well, it's up. It's up to you when you want to. Uh, Fifteen, like ten minutes. Yeah. Well, yep. Yeah, absolutely. Whatever you guys want to do. Excuse me. Yeah. Go for it. Well, in terms of the Trinity. Um, the, the one person that was here yeah. was Christ. Yep. Yep. So we may not be able to see God or feel God, and we can debate 
that forever yeah. and some people will say no I actually heard him and yeah. the, that can go on forever but we, we there was a person that came mm -hmm. with a big P yeah. <laughs> spelled yeah. with a large P yeah. uh, and that was Christ he was a person um, and he acknowledged his father mm. and his father acknowledged his son as you mm. mentioned in the baptism mm. so we know there's this relationship this closeness family if you like mm. maybe big F family yeah right, right. And then Jesus said, I have to go, but I will be sending, or, or the yeah, Holy Spirit, Spirit will come. Will come yeah. So, so there, there is this thing that mm. we don't know what to call it, you know, yeah. whether it's a three-leaf clover or, yeah. you know, whatever the little pictures were or whatever the debates people want to have. But if, if you follow the path of Christ, if, if you've chosen that, mm. then I don't understand the difficulty because there's this wonderful thing mm. that maybe we can't understand. See, I'm a yeah. musician, so I don't mind yeah. Yeah. the fact that yeah. I don't understand. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that there's You're, this thing yeah. that I can understand that's understandable yeah, yeah. because I will flow with that yeah. because of those those connections. Yeah, Very good. clear connections that's in good. Scripture. That's good. Um, before, I, before I forget, as someone who's new to the faith, you clearly have, <laughs> you're clearly ahead of the game in terms of your intellectual engagement so that's uh, that's really good um yeah if these questions don't bother you you're lucky um <laughs> and you know, quite honestly that's the part that's been easy you know yeah. i just look at my heart that's why i became a christian i just look at my heart it's there and yeah you know it just doesn't bother me great great well that no that's fantastic it's it, it, um well okay yeah, so I mean, these these questions bother people. These questions bother people to different degrees. Um, I do know some people that they're really not bothered at all by these sort of questions. They just live really fun and happy lives. And, uh, and, yeah, just just way more content in life than I am. Um, I'm sort of joking a bit there, but no, they are happier. Um, okay, so but why do it? Well. There's a whole load of reasons, I suppose, you could say why why you should do. One is if you want to be able to, do, as Paul says, and be able to give a defense, give a reason for yes. what you believe. So yes. I teach really, really bright boys, and yes. and they always want to, they want to question whether Christian faith is intellectually robust, and so I have to give reasons. Um, my friends that don't think about things, they just tend to stay away from sort of intellectual environments, which is. Fine. I'm not suggesting that we do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know you're not. I know you're okay. just sort of. Uh, so that's one reason. One, one is to, yep, give a defence to other people. So Josh was asking about these underlying assumptions, and I think there's loads of. Actually, I was more asking about uh, corroboration. Yeah. Okay. But okay, you mentioned the underlying assumptions. Yeah, yeah you mentioned them, and the, the good thing is loads of uh, f Christian philosophers who have done a, a lot of work trying to argue for those underlying assumptions. Uh, some of them, one of the guys in particular came to give a talk at my school the other day, he's, he's like a robot, he's, um, he's so smart but just has no social skills and, um, yeah I wouldn't want to be him but I'm glad that he does the work he does so yeah, giving a defence on the other hand but yeah, but then some of us just want to understand, we want to understand things more and I think to some people that will be like this and they want to be full-time theologians some people will be like this and they want to read C.S. Lewis once every 10 years and, and each to their own and some people will express in music rather than 
um, rather than. So if it if the three in one thing doesn't bother you, I think that's probably true of most people in the world. The doctrine of the Trinity doesn't bother them, and that's absolutely fine. But I imagine there's some things in faith that maybe do bother you, and you sort of you want to think about and ask questions. Well, Would that be true? Uh, if I can go back to yeah. the Trinity for a minute, yeah, yeah. Uh, when I hear people uh, describe it, yeah. As a musician, I just feel that's so limiting. Why do we have to describe yeah. it? Yeah, mm. yeah. So does okay. What if we say that God is good? Is that limiting? Yes. It is. <laughs> yeah. Well, it may be limit. What if we say God is good, but the way we understand good, it goes beyond how I understand good. Mm-hmm. The problem is if you don't say that, so you could just say God's a mystery, okay, and be beyond our comprehension. But then. It seems like you might want to know whether God is good or not. Mm-hmm. Well, God, God is good, but we are limited beings, so we can't comprehend the exact form yeah. of goodness. It's the worst right, so right, that right. Result in some serious badness from what we look around. Mm-hmm. There is a, we have to trust that there is a good intention behind it. Yeah, we but just don't understand it. So I'm on board. It's God's good, but your suggestion was that when we say God is good, that limits limits that's God. A good limit. That's a good limit. Okay, okay. We don't want God to be bad. Okay, so we can say God is good, and that's okay. But but when we say when we say that God is one person, three one God, three persons, that's not so good. Is that what you're your thought? Oh, okay. <laughs> you got me. It's good stuff. Uh, edit. Is anyone who hasn't asked? And then there's two others. Oh yeah, good. I just, I'm, I'm still trying to get my head around uh, the omnipresence mm-hmm. of God. Um, this is great. I mean, it's it's stretching. Um, this doesn't work for me okay. for a few reasons. But I think one of the things is the sense. I mean, the whole weight of the Old Testament, the idea of a blood sacrifice, of the, the presence of God dwelling with Israel, mm. their longing for that, his removal of his presence, yeah. and Christ coming as the fulfillment. Mm-hmm. Not just saving man from his sins, but of the Holy Spirit coming, mm-hmm. of Christ specifically giving the Holy Spirit as a promise of a fulfillment of what of His shed blood, mm-hmm. which the, the Old Testament was a shadow of that. Sure, sure. So <clears throat> this just seems to dumb that down in a sense. Okay. Personally. Yeah. Yeah. Me. Sure. 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 Um, and I, it's good. I want to really ponder. It, yeah. But. But to so kind I, of say, well, it's a little bit more of God in you, to me, I, I'm kind of on board with you, the, the sense, somehow God is upholding things with his power, yeah. the word of his power, but there is a sanctity, there, there, the blood of Christ has allowed us to receive the Holy Spirit, and nothing else. Uh, God's spirit, is a consu- God is a consuming fire, yeah. so there's something that the, the Jews, God, about the presence of God, yeah very clearly and so so I think we have to be really careful to just kind of say yeah it's just a little more squeezing of God's presence into us or or an enacting of his presence so that's what I feel so what do you want it so so what would you say would you say that God is present everywhere and then he becomes more present or yeah I don't know I mean I'm stretched but the upholding of things by the word of his power is that kind of that he is superintending. It's almost, I was thinking of superheroes, you know. Yeah. They can throw out their power. Yeah. And that affects things. Yeah. Kind of like you were saying, with the cause and effect. Yeah. But it's not them inhabiting the... Right. Um, so I don't know, but okay. I just feel okay. that there's a, okay. there's a so, fear of God, I guess, or a sense of 
that what what Christ has affected yeah. that can be lost in, in, in kind of picking that apart. Yeah. That yeah, I see what you mean. So you could say that God can be present in a weak sense and in a strong sense. Well, I wouldn't um, say it's weak. I mean, I mean oh, what I mean by weak is just like in a, in a mm-hmm. I don't mean in a, I don't mean in that God is weak, but it's in just a lesser sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's interesting, um, and it'd be really interesting to hear it spelt out. Yeah. Um, if you have some time to reflect on it, um, drop me an email with thoughts. That'd be really interesting to hear and reflect about. Yeah, yeah, of course. Well, this, the terminology like indwelling of the Holy Spirit. What's the difference between that and like baptism? Yeah, good, good. Yeah, I gotta go back to my Pentecostal days. Yeah. <laughs> We're not up to the front. <laughs> uh, yeah, mm. another another topic, and and it's not one I've actually looked at for about ten years. So what do people say? Some people, some people think that uh, you become a Christian, and then another point in your life, you're baptized baptized in the spirit and uh, they use as evidence Paul visits one community who uh, were converts but, but hadn't been baptized in the spirit uh, there's a whole lot of controversy over that whether there's this two stages to it whether you convert and you're later baptized and then when you're baptized the gifts of the Holy Spirit are present um, yeah it's, it seems like it's a biblical exegetical question seeing whether that's actually the case that in the scriptures that there are these two stages uh, what does the baptism do generally in Pentecostal circles it brings about the gifts of the Holy Spirit um, yeah that's that's what it does I think is that your understanding or do you want to push back the Pentecostal viewpoint I mean like I said I grew up Baptist and this is something that my husband and I are exploring you know yeah um, the, per- the person or of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, I, I'm not sure that God, my husband had an experience where, um, an overseas experience where he felt like he was touched, mm. you know, and had this like pouring of the Holy Spirit over his mm. body, you know, um, after being a Christian for many years. Yeah. Really had the Spirit within him, but it was yeah. like a greater understanding and just like, you know, um, yeah. So, and it's it great. didn't last, it didn't last that moment, but that's yeah. kind of what he felt through like, like the actual. Yeah. It's really interesting. Yeah, my my new project is on religious experience, looking at these sorts of experiences. Um, yep, some people think that that's the kind of thing that the Holy Spirit does, and some people don't. Yeah. I mean, originally it was called the Awakening, right? So maybe yeah. as Christians, we we can, if you've chosen that path and you are one, and perhaps you're very de- dedicated and. And perhaps you're not. Maybe you're a little lazy. But in either case, there's there there could be an awakening. And so I like that word because feeling could sound like it's full, mm. <laughs> or some people just want it to overflow. Yeah. But an awakening means that we we can always be pinched. We can always we can always go further. Mm. Yeah, I think it's a new I think it's a new talk. Um, <laughs> so everyone's pointing. We ever want to speak next? Speak next. <laughs> yeah, yeah, go for it. to respond to what's been said. You can go for it anyway. All right. Um, I don't know. I was thinking about what everyone was talking about, kind of like why does it, not why does it matter, but why does, like why should we 
be considering these things. And what kind of gets my goat is like, would I rather believe something and be wrong or be okay with not knowing it? And like, is one better or worse than the other? And like, I don't know. Yeah, that's kind of where I am. Like, do I want to take a hard stance mm. on it? What if I'm wrong? Wouldn't it be better to say, I don't know, God, you're a mystery. Mm. Like, mm. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Does that make okay, sense? Okay, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, you can say God's a mystery, or you can try to do the work and potentially be wrong. Yeah, yeah. Or you can, like, be like me and just say, I'm, I'm perfectly happy to say I'm wrong. Like, for me, it doesn't really, it's not really a problem if I'm wrong, because if someone can point out why I'm wrong, like, it just change the theory and, like, ro- error is growth. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, hopefully I'd only accept what they say if they have a good argument or something, or good evidence for it. But yeah, that's it, yeah, so is it worth it at all, given that we probably won't get it completely right? Yeah, it's... it's well, if your heart's in the right place, then God will take care of you. You will eventually get yeah. it. Isn't it awareness, levels of awareness? Like, I'm thinking of the imagination... Um, inspiration and intuition and those levels and if you're open to I don't to start with I don't have a problem with omnipresence to me God is everywhere and in everything Um, but for us it's our response he's there but we're not aware of it once we become somewhat aware of it Mm. there's that imagination level and then as that works and, and God is able to work in that level, mm. he's there. It's us mm. not acknowledging mm. or working with that. Mm. But as we become aware, then you've got some inspiration mm. coming, some more mm. thoughts, some yeah. more working with these ideas yeah. and what. And then you've got intuition where you're way more open, yeah. like not yeah. the average person, yeah. but saints. And yeah. So the question is whether you need to consent to this sort of this sort of action that you're talking with about. It. And I mean, I guess to start with, I think he's working subconsciously. Mm. Yeah. We're not even aware of it, but mm. once we become bring that into our consciousness Mm -hmm. and start dealing with those ideas or thoughts or maybe there is a God, you know, Mm. then you're at more of this level, but you've still got a lot of subconscious down there. So and the higher you go, the more closer you get to being filled with the Holy Spirit. Is that your idea? Filled is or more aware of the presence. Yeah. Yeah. So there's no like I agree with you, there's no change in in the volume, it's mm. more awareness. awareness of it. Yeah, yeah, I think that's the sort of idea I'm getting at. Yeah. Let's just end with these two. Okay, you're cool. Uh, I'd just like to comment on your talk about the baptism mm. of the Holy Spirit. From what I've studied, pneumatology or the, the Spirit, from a Pentecostal point of view, um, from what I remember, the Greek word for baptism is like a marinating or pickling pickle in a jar so it's that kind of a, a baptism in the Holy Spirit so somehow different than when we got saved and that's a whole discussion right there mm-hmm. um, but definitely going to the degree to the original words is helpful in your study um, and you did a great summary of Pentecostal 
Oh, is that accurate? That, that's pretty good. That's pretty Don't good. Don't buy fears. Um, um, and just one one comment. You made mm -hmm. a comment. This is sort of a side, but do you only teach bright men, bright boys? Um, the school I'm at only accepts fairly bright boys. Yeah. Oh, I preach in churches though, so I suppose I'm okay. preaching. Uh, so you all say? boys. <laughs> what? Yeah. <laughs> Where the goes. Yeah, it's a very prestigious school. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah, I don't know how I slipped in. <laughs> Liz? Uh, yeah, I mean, this is this is both to what you're saying and um, to why bother. And I think that this, these questions do have very practical applications. And, you know, this is like a lot of part of my background, mm -hmm. being raised charismatic in Victoria. Mm -hmm. um, and feeling a lot of pain and angst mm. um, from not having the experiences that other people had mm. with the baptism of the Holy mm. Spirit and mm. this expectation that you would you know fall over on the floor or speak in mm. tongues or whatever and being like something is wrong with me God hasn't chosen me yeah. the Spirit's mm -hmm. not in me um, and that like plagued me all through yeah. my life so I think there's a very yeah, like it's not point. just like eh, whatever because it was yeah. like the level that levels thing it really mm. bothers me that mm. language because um, it's not that I think that the Holy Spirit isn't working through our lives, but to say, I don't know. I mean, this is a bigger question of like, mm. how do you know that the Spirit is working and mm. present in your life, which mm. we're talking about partly at lunch today, but, but how do you, how do you hold these kind of views without saying like, mm. okay, you're in, you're out, <laughs> like you're, yeah. you're more Christian and yeah, like, I know that's not exactly what that theology is saying, but it does really start to create that in the church setting as I, that I've observed. This is like some of my personal stuff I haven't 100% worked through, but I do see a very like practical application of these ways of thinking about how God is, how the Spirit is present in people's yeah. lives. Yeah. That's really, yeah, I think my own motivation is similar. Like when I was 16, 17, filled with the Spirit at church meant that you'd fall on the ground and yeah. shake and stuff like that. And I'm now like 31 and I don't fall on the ground and shake too often. <laughs> so I'm like, am I filled with the Spirit? So that, I think that's where the, these sort of questions came from. Good. Well, thank you so much for your very you. intelligent questions and your objections. Fun to hear them. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.